I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Michael Vostok. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a seismologist, right? That's correct. What is a seismologist? Well, broadly speaking, a seismologist is someone who studies the Earth or aspects of the Earth using the waves generated by earthquakes or anthropogenic sources. Uh, of course, seismology has been very important, uh, for example, for discovering hydrocarbon deposits and placing us in the predicament we're currently in as far as climate change is concerned. But uh, one branch of seismology, which is what uh, I study, concerns earthquakes. Uh, so understanding more about the earthquake source and about uh, earth structures using the waves generated by earthquakes. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like um, sonar. You're understanding what's underneath the ground by... Yeah, that's right. It's, it's sort of a sonar for solids. Uh, you know, <laughs> sonar is uh, often thought of as being sort of appropriate for uh, underwater environments and so on, or using sound waves, obviously. And so uh, this is sound waves, but in solids for the most part. That's really cool. It's a really unique approach. Uh, now, in this podcast, we try to meet people at various stages in their careers. Uh, where would you say you're at in your career? I guess I would say I'm looking at the dusk. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm not afraid of my age. I'm, uh, I'm closing in on 59, and uh, that means I've got, you know, at most a, a decade or so of work ahead of me, probably if I'm lucky or if I um, go that far. So yeah, I, I would say I'm a seasoned researcher at this point. Excellent. Uh, I'm also curious, what education did you have to get into this uh, career? Yeah, well, I, um, I, like many people, I guess my age, wasn't clear on what I really wanted to do. And on the advice of my dad, I, um, I went into engineering uh, because he told me that you know engineering is a uh, field that allows you to uh, to do a whole variety of things and uh, not simply engineering, but perhaps go on into science or into business or what have you. And so I, 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 I uh, went into engineering at Queen's University. Uh, I will say that my father and his father were both geologists and I was quite determined not to, be, not to become a geologist. <laughs> and uh, yet in that first year of engineering, I took, uh, physics courses and I took, uh, we were all, we, we were the engineers, uh, like I think most engineers, I think uh, most programs are, are, are required to take a inner science course in their first year. And so really the two courses I enjoyed them, I enjoyed the maths and I enjoyed the physics and I, I, I really liked the your um, science and particularly the exposure to the, uh, the solid earth. I mean, what we know about the, uh, the deeper reaches of the earth of the planet. And so you know, I decided at that point, well, geophysics was enough of a departure from my uh, lineage that uh, perhaps that was the thing I should go into. So that's, that's more or less how it, how it worked. And then I have to say, uh, there was a, a geophysicist, a geophysicist at, um, at Queens uh, by the name of Ed Farrar. Some people who have gone through the geological sciences department at Queens will know that name. He unfortunately passed away only a year or two ago. Um, and uh, 
I've since, uh, I've since learned that he, he did this to a number of students, uh, including Rosemary Knight, who was a geophysicist here before moving to Stanford back in the uh, 90s. And he, he pulled me aside, like he pulled her aside, and he said, you know, you really ought to think about going into graduate work. And uh, that, that was the first time I thought, okay, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a, sort of a career in science for me. And so I, I, I followed his advice and uh, went on to graduate work. Uh, I did a master's at Queen's uh, in engineering seismology, as it turns out, looking at collapsed structures and potash mines, trying to use uh, seismology, active source seismology, to better understand uh, where, where, uh, where, these, where water inflows basically occurred in, in potash mines, which of course pose a big hazard to mining of potash. And then I went on to the Australian National University for a, a doctorate. Uh, and there I, I worked on a completely different topic, uh, trying to understand uh, or trying to uh, develop theoretical descriptions of scattering of surface waves in the earth. So, uh, and then uh, I don't know if your I don't know if your question uh, implied sort of tracing my career or not, but uh, I went on to Holland to do a post postdoctoral work at Utrecht, which is so. Uh, established center for seismology in Europe and I was very fortunate on, on my first job interview to to be uh, uh, you know to be offered a position here at UBC which is where I've been since 90, 1993. Oh congratulations. <laughs> yeah and it was very easy compared to you know I think so much in life including work is, is serendipity and uh, certainly things worked out for me in that regard. Do they have a lot of earthquakes in Australia? Uh, no, nor in Holland, as it turns out. Uh, but Australia is an interesting continent because it is actually, well, most continents, I suppose, are, but it's a small continent, obviously, and it's uh, bordered on three sides by plate boundaries. And um, so, if you include New Zealand, that is. And so, it, you know, it, it is, there is a relatively rich, I guess Australians are fortunate, like we in Canada are for the most part, not here on the West Coast, but that, that they don't really... They don't really experience significant earthquake hazard, uh, but um, you know it's, it remains fertile ground for uh, for global seismology and trying to understand uh, plate boundaries and so on. I guess yeah, it's nice to have a uh, solid baseline. Yes, and the first uh, so the first earthquake I actually felt was not in Australia, <laughs> although we went to there was a uh, there was a, a one of the few large intraplate earthquakes that occurred. Uh, it has occurred in Australia. It was at Ayers Rock, now known as Uluru, I believe, <laughs> and it uh, it was a magnitude five event in the middle of the continent. And I was fortunate in my first year actually to be sent out on a, a field crew. <clears throat> I know this question's coming up on field work. Uh, I'm also uh, I was I was quite an avid bird watcher at the time, and I remember heading out there into this uh, you know for a Canadian extremely um, exotic landscape and uh, and uh, sort of a, you know a myriad of different species. Uh, one in particular, uh, I recall the Major Mitchell's cockatoo, a beautiful uh, white parrot with a blush of pink on it, and I saw that out there. It's not, not something you see uh, frequently, so going up to the outback was, was pleasant. But anyway, we uh, managed also to climb Ayers Rock, Blue, and uh, that, was, uh, that was an important earthquake for me. And I, the, the first earthquake I actually experienced was, of all places, in Holland, if you can believe it, so while I was in Holland. There was also a, a, a rare, one of these rare uh, events that occurred, I think it was on, close to the Belgian border. Again, I think it was close to magnitude five. And of course, the seismologists in Holland were, were uh, very, very excited because these sorts of events uh, don't come around very often. So, 
Wonderful. That would have been, well, ground-shaking, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it wasn't anything uh, particularly damaging, but it, it, certainly I remember feeling it. And uh, that was my really my first earthquake, if you like. And what are you researching right now? Well, uh, let's see. I guess uh, sort of as I look, you know, into the into the dusk of my career, uh, I was fortunate. Uh, I've actually been on sabbatical, and which is why, unfortunately, this interview was delayed until until now. Uh, but I, um, one of the reasons for going on sabbatical was to uh, to uh, put a, a grant proposal together uh, for a large uh, offshore program to study the plate boundary structure off offshore of BC, and uh, this 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 um, this was really prompted by the fact that Canada. Uh, I, I, I'm loath to say, it doesn't have a particularly good oceanographic, uh, inf uh, what do I want to say, not infrastructure, but uh, infrastructure for actually conducting oceanographic style research. Uh, we rely on Coast Guard vessels as, as research vessels, which means that you know, if there are emergencies at sea, they have to be diverted and experiments fall under and so on. And uh, so my efforts, uh, Part of my efforts during sabbatical was trying to secure, produce a, a, a proposal to secure funding really uh, for ship time work offshore BC. And uh, this was to complement another project on which I am not the lead, but uh, a colleague of mine at Dalhousie, Maladin Demovich, is. He, uh, he, along with 10 others, uh, including myself, put together a big grant for uh, 120 ocean bottom seismometers, which record are specifically designed seismometers for recording earthquakes on the seafloor. Hmm. And so this was a big investment. That was a uh, $15 million investment by the Canada Foundation of Innovation. Wow. <clears throat> it took uh, a number of, you know, quite some time to put together and with COVID and everything, all sorts of things were delayed. But nonetheless, that gave us the hardware that we need to do the kind of work we want to do. And now we needed, uh, we needed, uh, more monies to actually uh, be able to use those instruments. And so, as I say, I, I, I uh, got together with a lot of people, uh, colleagues in the, both in the government domain and the academic domain to put together a proposal, which we found out a couple of weeks ago was successful. And that's a $1.4 million proposal for a five-year program. <coughs> it, it's collaboration with, uh, it's in collaboration, as I say, with both academics, Canadian universities and the uh, Natural Resources Canada contingent of uh, seismologists. And so we're very excited, I think, about uh, engaging, embarking on this five-year program to study the offshore of BC. Uh, and I'll say a couple more, more words about that. The, uh, you know, a lot of focus in this neck of the woods, it has to do with the Cascadia subduction zone, of course. Uh, as it turns out, the Cascadia subduction zone is quite silent, and that's, that's an ominous silence. And that's not really what we're focused on in this work. Uh, the Cascadia subduction zone sort of ends roughly uh, three quarters of the way up uh, the coast on Vancouver Island. And then we enter a, a very different regime, a regime which is uh, instead of dominated by convergence, converging plates, the one that Buka and North American plates, we enter a regime where the North American plate and the Pacific plate are sort of being uh, are not in a state of convergence, but rather they're in a sort of transformed state. And uh, the whole region experienced, uh, the whole region, in fact, the, the entire plate, uh, the global plate circuit, 
experienced major changes in terms of Pacific plates motions somewhere in the vicinity of five to six million years ago. Hmm. And that's resulted in a readjustment in the plate boundary uh, in off Western North America. And the result, of course, we have a lot of geologists or scientists will be familiar with the Queen Charlotte Fault, which is kind of the analog to the San Andreas Fault further south, albeit it sits offshore. Uh, but there's sort of an intervening region, which is sometimes called the Queen Charlotte Triple Junction, where there's a, a very complex array of faults uh, that uh, along which deformation is distributed. And they're, they're probably in a sort of a, a, a transient or ephemeral state as as, as they uh, adjust, if you like, to the to the, the control of the Pacific and, uh, in this instance, North American plates, because the Pacific plate, of course, is a gigantic uh, uh, contiguous piece of uh, lithosphere. And so it, it, it probably drives all this. And anyway, we're, we're <coughs> a bit, you know, the, the seismicity from Haida Gwaii south to northern Vancouver Island is actually far more abundant than seismicity on the, in the Cascadia subduction zone, which is, as I say, ominously silent. Uh, so uh, we're really focused on this region, and I'll also point out that this region, well, the, the entire actually west coast off of uh, British Columbia was, you know, a very, very important uh, area for understanding for, for in the development of uh, plate tectonics. Um, because, you know, for example, the, the, uh, the magnetic anomaly patterns off of, uh, off, off the coast here sort of provided the clues that were needed for people like Vinnie Matthews and of course Tuzo Wilson to to come up with the theory of seafloor spreading and plate tectonics and so on and uh, the large actually the large Seattle earthquake in the early 60s that was very important for you know that provided compelling and complementary evidence that you know uh, that, that this was an active plate margin and so on and subduction was occurring uh, so go home team yeah, that's right. So uh, we're coming back to this region of microplate evolution to, to gain understanding in sort of a, a second order uh, plate tectonics. You know, how do plate how do plate boundaries change in response to in response to you know major changes in, 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 in plate configurations and so on. Well, congratulations on your successful grant applications and also. Uh, thanks for really patiently and clearly uh, explaining the mess <laughs> that is uh, where those two different uh, plate boundaries converge. I can only imagine the challenges in um, uh, mapping that. Uh, how close is that um, plate boundary and how large is the plate boundary? Uh, well, uh, so some, some listeners might recall that in 2012 there was a large earthquake uh, off Haida Gwaii. It was, uh, Magnitude 7.8 produced a significant tsunami. Uh, the, the good thing was that you know the west coast of, in particular, of Moresby Island is very sparsely inhabited. I don't know. I don't think there are any settlements on the west coast. They're deeply incised fjords and so on. There were run-ups, as I understand it, of um, you know I don't think uh, uh, they were between you know five something on the order of five to ten meter run-ups, and so they you know they created a lot of damage, but nothing in terms of uh, human. Um, casualties or anything of that nature uh, and a lot of shaking uh, and basically all the way from the, the sort of the corner of the, uh, the Alaska Panhandle all the way down to Haida Gwaii is this Queen Charlotte or the, it's formerly known as Queen Charlotte well it's known as the Queen Charlotte Fault 
and it is you know it's it's for most of its uh, for most of its I think thousand kilometer trajectory it is a very sharply defined plate boundary strike slip plate boundaries sort of a, almost a you know a textbook example but as you get into Haida Gwaii there, uh, and if you look closely at the map you'll see that there is a sort of a the curvature changes to become uh, more concave and and as a result in Haida Gwaii there is a little bit of a, a convergent component and this actually turned out to be a thrust earthquake which is why it produced a tsunami uh, people may know that only only thrust or normal uh, normal earthquakes but normal earthquakes typically are, are too small to produce a large tsunami so you know, big tsunamis are generated by thrust earthquakes, and this was an emphatic, this had been a debate for quite some time, but this earthquake emphatically demonstrated that there is a significant um, sort of a thrust, if you like, subduction-like uh, fault that occurs under Haida Gwaii. And immediately south of Haida Gwaii, all that changes. So when you ask about the complexity of the plate boundary, that uh, changes. And then there are a, a range of features um, that belie sort of a more distributed deformation. Uh, these features, uh, those familiar with the area might know them, uh, they are the Tuzo-Wilson Knolls, uh, and uh, sort of the Tuzo-Wilson Seamounts and the uh, Delwood Knolls. <laughs> so they're sort of volcanic structures, and seismicity is kind of diffusely distributed across maybe 40, 50 kilometers or so. And this is a big sort of, uh, we've done some initial work others, you know, building on the work of others, uh, that this looks like a big evolving pull-apart basin between Southern Haida Gwaii and the Explorer Ridge. Uh, well, pull-apart half of that region is pull-apart basin, and, and we believe that the other half was pull-apart basin, but has since evolved into a more, into a uh, sort of a more uh, deformation isolated along, primarily along a single fault strand known as the Revere Delwood Fault. So that, that region is very complex. It's in a state of uh, evolution. Uh, there's volcanism associated with it. You know, uh, there'd be various petrologists, uh, including Dick Chase of this department, uh, who put a lot of effort in uh, the 1970s into understanding, uh, you know, he did, he did uh, seafloor geochemistry and so on, uh, understanding those volcanics. And then we reach the Explorer Plate. And the Explorer Plate, in the textbook, is a, is a, it's a plate. Um, but that feature is probably, it's a, it's a plate, if you like, a microplate that's undergoing considerable uh, internal deformation. And it looks like plate fabric plays a, a major role in how it's being deformed. And that whole region really, it, it's probably not quite correct to call it a plate in the sense of a you know, contiguous body that behaves rigidly. Um, it's something that's in, undergoing a lot of internal deformation. And that brings us right up to the, the northern end of the Wanda so there are these different components, as I say, this sort of this distributed region of the Delwood Knolls, uh, Tuzo Wilson Seamounts, the Revere Delwood Fault that's, that behaves more or less like a, a, a you know a pure strike slip uh, transform again. Uh, there's a little bit of convergence we think that it's being taken up along the shelf, but that's one of the targets for this uh, this work that we're talking about. Uh, and then the Explorer Plate again. It, Lots of interesting stuff going on there in terms of its boundaries. There's something called a nuclear fault zone, another fracture zone on its, that's sort of the uh, southeastern boundary, the southwestern boundary is the Savanko fracture zone. Uh, they're both sort of nominally uh, strike slip <laughs> features, but in, in reality they are, they are much more complex than that. <clears throat> Savanko fracture zone has these sort of interesting bookshelf like tectonic structures, it looks like. Uh, <clears throat> the, um, the, 
a nuke fault zone has, uh, it, it appears to, you know, it's not a, a it seems, again, it appears to be a zone of distributed deformation. Uh, so we'd like to go in and characterize some of these structures more thoroughly, understand what their maximum seismogenic potential is. Uh, you know, in terms of their dimensions, they're all potentially capable of producing sort of magnitude seven events. Some of them have produced a magnitude seven events. Uh, knowing what the tectonic environment is in terms of stress and whether there's convergence or is it all strictly transformed. These are all important questions that we'll be dealing with. So I'm sorry I went into some detail there, which uh, no, no, um, not excessive, so. You mentioned earlier that you've got, you've got all these brand new toys, all these new uh, seismographs, and I thought, why do you do you need all that equipment? But now that you're explaining all the complexity that's going on uh, yeah. just off our coast, um, I'm wondering, is that even enough? <laughs> well, what we're going to do is every year we're going to uh, deploy uh, 30 instruments or so, the plan is, and we've divided we've, these alliance grants were neatly, um, they, they sort of have a five-year duration, up to five-year duration, which suits our, our needs quite well. Uh, and we've in fact, uh, it's, uh, our work is actually six years, but we got, we, this is piggybacking on some work, uh, collaborative work we've done with the Americans off on the Queen Charlotte Fault. Uh, and we will be deploying Canadian instruments starting this fall in, in, in quantities of 30 at a time. So it'll be out, uh, 30, 30, uh, 30 of these instruments will be out for a one year, 15 month sort of period. And they will record seismicity during that period and then we'll, uh, bring them, uh, we'll, we'll recover them, and on the same cruise, we will deploy them to the next region. So we're sort of we'll piggyback our way down the margin, uh, looking at, at with sort of five primary deployments focused on uh, focused on each of these regions, aforementioned regions I mentioned. That's exciting. Uh, but I'm curious, why should the average person care about um, the plate boundaries and where they are? Right. Well, of course, uh, we do live on an active. Uh, we do live on an active margin, and so uh, that you know, as I say, these faults are, are smaller faults than the Cascadian subduction zone. But the Queen, I should say that, of course, the Queen Charlotte Fault is a, is a is a very large structure, and very complex. And we've already experienced a magnitude seven point eight event uh, off Haida Gwaii, and one might argue that you know that um, that. Uh, the recurrence for such events, you know, calculations put the recurrence interval at something like a thousand years. So we, we needn't worry about that class of event again. But that boundary is highly complex. And in fact, Canada's largest earthquake uh, was a strike slip earthquake on that branch of the fault uh, of, the, of the plate boundary that occurred in uh, the late 40s. I, think, I almost forget whether it was 48 or 49. But it was Canada's largest historically recorded earthquake, magnitude uh, 8.1, as I recall, something that order and you know along that margin I think there have been something like seven uh, magnitude seven and a half or above earthquakes and so you know uh, if in as if infrastructure if the you know developments uh, have, when you when you build structures in a region like Haida Gwaii uh, you have to be aware of the, the, the seismic hazard that the plate boundaries uh, pose and uh, that's true also of these other structures now you know, one could argue that the BC coast is 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 not very densely populated, and uh, hopefully will stay that way. I guess uh, at least from my perspective, uh, we don't want to see a lot of uh, development in these areas, uh, these pristine areas, which are you know uh, refuges for our, in our planet. 
on our planet. But, you know, uh, there, nonetheless, there are hazards posed, and the, the hazards are not simply, of course, uh, earthquakes. They are tsunamis, and they are, um, there are other uh, um, debris, uh, you know, debris flow type hazards that are a concern. Uh, so certainly there is a hazard component, and this this work was funded in part because of the importance in better uh, understanding that seismic hazard. And the other reason, as I mentioned earlier, was that you know this is a, a bit of an actual laboratory for understanding microplate evolution in response to uh, global plate changes. So, so I think those are uh, you know I, every everyone wants to you know, everyone wants to know. Um, you know what's what's the, what is the importance? What is the significance? Well, you know, uh, we want to understand more about how our planet works, and there is, uh, you know, pure science. I, I I'm strong, perhaps a uh, conflict of interest, but I'm a strong proponent of pure science because you know, as we gain better understanding of our of our world, we are in a better position to to manage it generally. Um, and that just doesn't mean um, progress in a in socio-industrial sense, but also in terms of the environment, uh, you know, it's become increasingly clear just how, you know, uh, that the planet is in a, in, a, in a state of jeopardy because we haven't managed it well. And uh, if we don't start managing it well, uh, that uh, the, there will be repercussions. So and there are repercussions are already being witnessed. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, one could argue about where, where, how one should prioritize earthquake research, but I think um, I think this is important work, and I'm I'm very pleased that we've got that we've launched this initiative. That we've got the instrumentation that we've got now uh, funds for working off the off the BC coast. I think uh, this will provide opportunities. You know, the focus of this work is really collaborative and multi-institutional. Uh, I really and there I'm, I'm hoping that it will allow a lot of younger scientists who have entered the ranks to sort of get their feet wet, so to speak, and. Uh, uh, get their get hands-on experience and, and launch a, a new generation of seismological, uh, perhaps a, a new decade of a, a seismological exploration because the West Coast is just one target. Um, we have three three oceans, of course, that border, border our shores, and uh, and uh, we'd like to know more about each of them. It's uh, very important. I always say that we live on top of a global car crash in this city, and the <laughs> mountains are the crumple zone. Yeah, that's right. That's that's right. Uh, you mentioned one really fun field story, um, getting uh, your first earthquake in the center of Australia. Uh, I love hearing the field stories, or when things don't go as planned, either in the field or in the lab. Uh, <laughs> do you have any fun stories you'd care to share? Well, I, I think it would be misleading to say that um, I don't have any uh, examples of unplanned disasters or, or something, uh, in a sense, maybe that's just, uh, again, um, providence. Or unexpected uh, discoveries. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of you know I, I've I've done field work in a variety of places. You know, we have, uh, there's been work uh, of course in, in southwestern British Columbia here, uh, so-called Polaris experiment. That was uh, those were ex, um, experiments uh, again funded by CFI infrastructure or funded by CFI. Uh, we used uh, satellite telemetry infrastructure that um, to uh, to focus on seismic hazard. Southwestern British Columbia, in which I was involved on uh, better understanding of um, the mantle beneath the Slave Province, uh, of course, which uh, is important to sort of understanding how diamonds uh, came to be, and that was that. Wow. I remember that CFI 
project, of course, the, there was the uh, so-called Stuart Blusson Fund that uh, contributed to that. It was nice because, of course, uh, uh, you know, Stuart Blusson, uh, an alumnus from this department, um, of course, uh, was one of the discoverers, Dean Chuck, fifty, I think, the original discoverers of diamonds in the Slave Province, and so. Uh, we have the opportunity through CFI, funded in part through donations by Stuart Blesson. Sorry, where's Slave Province? The Slave Province is is uh, slave or the Slave Craton, as it's sometimes called. It's one of the you know one of the Archean building blocks of our of the of the Precambrian Shield and therefore North America. And so uh, it was the first place that diamonds were discovered. Diamonds in sort of commercially viable quantities were discovered in in North America, and uh, you know that was sort of that was. The late 80s and 90s and uh, we, we got you know this this infrastructure from CFI we, we employed on the slave province to better to, to use teleseismic waves generated by distant earthquakes to image the, the subsurface and try to get a better understanding of you know the the origins of kimberlites and so on so that those those were two of the the two of the the main foci of that early work uh, so I've done field work there, and also in northwestern Canada. I mean, I remember working in the Northwest Territories was you know fantastic. The, uh, the Serengeti of the North, all the wildlife. I'm struggling to think of some 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 <laughs> funny experiences as I can relate about that work. How do you find um, field work is different, or is field work different uh, in places like Australia and the Netherlands versus Canada? Uh, well, you know, geophysicists have it relatively easy, and our fieldwork often involves, you know, instead of involving you know, three months at a time, I mentioned my, my father and grandfather, I think one of the reasons why I wasn't particularly keen to get involved in geology was because the, I think the fieldwork takes a horrendous toll on personal lives. I mean, and that's, of course, uh, improved a lot over in, in time with technology and uh, so on. My grandfather would spend you know, I think uh, something probably May through September in uh, either in the field or traveling to and from the field, and he worked up in the Yukon. Yeah. Uh, my father would spend it, you know, typically three months, so maybe June through uh, August. And field work in geophysics typically isn't much more. It all depends, of course, on the nature of the campaign. Um, you know, our cruises will probably be one to two week cruises to deploy these instruments. Uh, there can be very large, uh, long, of course, long duration marine uh, work, which I'm not so keen on. I don't have the best sea legs. But, um, so most of, most of the work that we do is typically campaigns of, you know, not more than a few weeks. Uh, and I remember one, one piece of field work that was, I, I, again, like Australia in a way, but uh, more recent, uh, which I was, uh, I was, very, very happy to be a part of was um, actually a field school in Chile, in the Atacama. Mm. Uh, well, actually all the way from the coast, sort of up in northern Chile, where things are very, very dry. One of the driest, if not the driest place on Earth. There really are moonscapes up there that, uh, actually Marscapes, I guess, because it's all very red, where you don't see plants at all. But going from the coast to the high Andes and looking at some of the structures, looking at the various structures, generated by successive um, changes in the plate boundary, uh, absolutely spellbinding stuff, um, really fantastic. Uh, but I, <laughs> I can't, I'm struggling to think of a funny anecdote. I don't have one right at the moment. 
No, no worries. Like you said, I'm sure uh, spending a summer in the territories would be beautiful, mm -hmm. but I can also imagine all those bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did this for a certain early summer. This was deploying, this was a work with Americans, sort of a combined, it was actually a lithoprobe uh, NSF Iris Pascal uh, joint experiment. Uh, we field work took us, <coughs> it was a three pronged array, took us from Edmonton up to sort of uh, Fort Liard and then two more legs out uh, west <coughs> to Watson Lake, uh, Whitehorse, that region, another one up towards the Northwest Territory. So the, like the, um, the Alaska Fort Liard Kenzie Highway system. We, we took advantage of that, so that was a nice opportunity to see, you know, part of Canada I hadn't seen before, and to, uh, yeah, to, to some intimate experiences with bugs, as you say. <laughs> now I'm curious. You're clearly very passionate about your work, um, but what's the best part of your work? What really gets you up in the morning? Now that's probably changed uh, over time. Um, you know, the geophysics is, is a nice field because it's got this you've got this combination. I, I mean, this is true of many branches of physical sciences, but I mean, you've got this. You you apply the principles of physics and maths to you know to problems that that you that are very tangible. I mean, in the sense that you, you can go out and see the results of the earth at work as you say and so that's certainly that's very gratifying um, there is this social relevance of working on earthquakes which I think is a, a nice component working with students has been a great joy you know, I've been very very fortunate um, probably in, in part because I think of that initial serendipitous um, hire here at, at UBC and that it's uh, UBC you know, Vancouver is obviously a very attractive place especially to Especially to um, <laughs> to young um, uh, impressionable graduates who are looking for you know their for, to do their, their to do graduate work and uh, they're looking for a nice place. Uh, certainly, my motivation you know my motivation was to uh, this is a perhaps a slightly funny story is that I um, uh, as I mentioned I did a master's at Queen's University and then I was trying to decide where to go for my doctorate and I. I had this, I, I really wanted, I wanted to go to Australia and I didn't care who I worked with. Of course, that's not the first thing on your mind. You want to visit a, a new place and get involved and, you know, learn about different cultures and so on. But uh, I, you know, I, I had to think carefully because at the same time, you know, at the times I was deciding, Ron Close uh, of this department, now, now a professor emeritus, of course, and the director of Lithoprobe for many years, so well-known amongst the... Uh, Amongst Canadian geoscientists, he phoned me up as a as a as a you know he knew he was aware of I guess through NSERC or whatever that um, uh, that I that was potentially someone uh, that might be interested in undertaking work with him, and he tried to convince me to come. And uh, in a sense, uh, I I see that as a serendipitous moment because I I really was committed to get out of the country. I thought I really wanted to go somewhere, use this as an opportunity to. See, see some place new, even though Vancouver would have been, you know, obviously if I were to stay in Canada, that would have been a, a change because I lived my life out east and so on. Uh, so the fact that, you know, I think that was probably pivotal because uh, I think that certainly at that time there was a real desire to bring in new blood uh, into departments, you know, when you, and I still think that's a, an important, a very important consideration that you hire, you don't hire your own and that you hire people with uh, you know, come from perhaps 
cultures that are a little scientifically uh, different from that of a given department, you don't want to inbreed, in my opinion. But anyway, um, that, that's sort of a political stance, I guess. But uh, I, would, I think that at that time, the fact that I had studied in Australia, and I was very fortunate, actually, accidentally, to have studied with someone who was a, uh, you know, a very quite a prominent seismologist, Professor Brian Cat at the Australian National University. And so I think that fared me very well uh, in getting the position here, and I've <laughs> gone through a big digression, but being you know being scientists here at UBC is a is a great privilege in in, in part um, through through not through not through being affiliated directly with UBC, but being in Vancouver because so many good students are attracted to Vancouver as a place to come and do their work. So I've had I've been really blessed with I won't name them. Uh, they know who they are. They're, they're uh, with a wide range of it's that balance between having uh, diverse viewpoints of people with different experience, but also maintaining that institutional uh, knowledge and wisdom, which uh, it sounds like you've been here for quite a while. Uh, you fill both roles. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, I haven't, uh, you know, I guess some people move around. I was just very fortunate that the first job I was offered is the job. I, I really wanted to come to UBC. I mean, uh, another funny story is that uh, I almost didn't apply for the job. I, uh, I was supposed to talk to Utrecht, as I mentioned. Uh, there was a visiting sabbaticant uh, there, uh, Bob Nowak, who actually came and visited me as a sabbaticant. Uh, uh, What's a sabbaticant? A sabbaticant is someone who takes a sabbatical. So he was, uh, he was at Utrecht at that time. He was a, a young professor. I was, uh, of course, a postdoc. And he said, did you notice the job advert in EOS? The, the, sort of magazine of the American Geophysical Union. I said, yeah, I noticed that, but you know, maybe I'll wait for next year to apply. <laughs> he said, jobs like this don't come around very often. In fact, this was the first time I think the Department of Geophysics and Astronomy had hired into geophysics, I can't remember, for 10 years or something like that. And so I almost didn't apply. And when I applied, Bob Ellis, another uh, former prof, uh, now, now emeritus, um, you know, he said, well, you're late, uh, but we'll take your application, and, and if you're coming to HU, well, then uh, we can talk. And so you can see I almost didn't get, uh, I almost didn't even bother to apply. I was sort of naive, uh, sort of callow. And um, and so, uh, so yes, so serendipity has played certainly a role in my career. Always apply, it never hurts. <laughs> that's right. That's a, In fact, that, that's a very good adage, uh, Daniel. Because uh, I, I tell all my graduate students, even if you're not interested in the position per se, uh, or not, it wouldn't be top on your list. You sh you should apply. It gives, if nothing else, it gives you good experience. Um, you may not, you know, you may not. Of course, you can get onto the shortlist, but it, it, you, it allows you to sort of hone your your skills, your your application writing skills. If you get a if you're on the shortlist or long list, get interviews of various kinds, then um, that's very valuable experience. And you know the important thing these days, although I wasn't forced to, to do it, is to uh, get your foot in the door. And uh, you know that getting your foot in the door means you can you know begin to develop your research and you know make impressions and so on. And then it's uh, you know many people, as you say, uh, will move on and you know perhaps have uh, you know several institutions uh, by the time they finish their. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what's the worst part of your work or the most challenging part? Yeah, 
you know, I, I've been very, very fortunate. I can't really complain about uh, my case. You know, I am, I am somewhat worried about, about um, pure research. Uh, I think that this is not necessarily uniquely Canadian, but uh, you know, the funding allocated to to various programs is probably is not adequate to do the work that scientists could do. I think Canadian scientists work on shoestrings, um, even compared to you know to their to, to, to various counterparts. I mean, there are. Um, I think the funding situation is a concern. I, I would say um, I've managed. To, to do what I need to do, so I, I, but it's becoming more difficult, and I really, I'm very sympathetic to some of the younger scientists who are having trouble breaking in. Uh, I, I don't understand some of the decisions that are being made at times, and um, I think that I don't know what's required there. I, uh, I know there are so many demands on on public funds these days, so I'm. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what what uh, to say, except that I, I worry about the future of science, and I also think that the, the focus always on um, on socioeconomic um, factors is also a bit of a um, misguided. You know, I mean, yes, that's important, but I thought oh, we mustn't lose track of the fact that that knowledge in and of itself is very important, and often has completely unforeseen benefits for. Society, so. It does seem that career plateaus are coming higher and higher, um, and to get to those first plateaus. Uh, you mean, to, for example, getting funding for research is up here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, I talked to I talked to junior scientists who, and some of whom are, are extremely gifted and are having uh, you know difficulties in the current climate, and uh, I fear you know when they get disenchanted. For greener pastures, then that Canada loses. So. Absolutely. I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your work in any no, way? No, I'm embarrassed to say I belong to the most privileged demographic, white, yeah. Anglo Saxon male. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> it's, it's who you are. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, I have, I mean, fortunately, but I. Uh, Fortunately for my, for me, I haven't faced any barriers that I could I could uh, yeah that I could point to. It's so good. Um, I'm also curious. Do you find that seismology is really open and welcoming, or is it more closed off and insular? No, seismology amongst the earth sciences. I think uh, I would say it's probably the most uh, engaged, uh, community-driven socialist. Uh, you know, in terms of there's a seismological culture of sharing. And working together for big experiments that I think is probably exemplary as far as the earth sciences is concerned. Um, and I, I would say, I mean, I, I'm talking from a global perspective, and it's being led by the Americans because of uh, a consortium of universities that is known as IRIS, the um, Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, and they have uh, they have got together, and they have also. Uh, they have also not only have they got together and secured funding from the U.S. government to, for their operations to do big experiments to uh, also to have a, 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 a to have national instrument pools. They've also pulled together international colleagues in a way where uh, all countries across across the globe contribute seismological data, 
that is then freely available um, to, for, to, for anyone to use. And so it's really an example of data sharing, community-driven efforts uh, that um, is not the case in all branches of earth science. Uh, so it's more akin, perhaps, if you like, to some of these uh, like these physics colliders uh, type uh, type work, um, whereas uh, other branches sometimes are you know much more insular. So I would say yeah, there's a very good, very very good healthy um, community of seismologists across the globe. That's great. Given the topic of study, I would have expected the opposite. Maybe a little more confrontational and uh, yeah, well, rubbing each other the wrong way. I think that used to be the case. You know that every 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 little group would sit on their data and not let anything out and, and so on. But the, the group of American scientists, I, Good. I know some of them, Peter Shear, uh, Gene Humphreys, uh, there are others, I don't want to leave anyone out, but you know, they're, they're, these were guys who said, you know, we don't want little little kingdoms sitting on data, only, only the Harvards and the Caltechs or whatever, being able to fund big experiments and then sitting on data for years. The data the value in data is when everyone gets a crack at it. Of course, the people who collect the data first, you know, there's often uh, whatever, uh, two, one or two year embargoes on, on, on data that uh, allow the, the primary researchers to get the first results out. But once it's out, um, then, uh, you know, then everyone has, is able to get added value out of it. Some governments really, you know, the, the, the value of the investment is, is multiplied many fold. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an editor at, at the present for the American Geophysical Union uh, Journal, Journal of Geophysical Research, Solid Earth. And again, again there, uh, I think, you know, the, the drive is for fair data policies, uh, uh, and where basically that if you're, if you're going to publish in the journal, uh, you need to supply the data that would allow people to reproduce, um, you know, re reproduce the results. And so I think that's an important, uh, and I think that, now this of course is, is across the earth sciences because if you want to publish in some of these more prestigious journals, you need to adhere to these policies. And so I think there is a drive overall, um, science, you know, for sharing and ensuring, uh, it has to be policed and that's part of my job as editor. But uh, I think uh, I think science is, is sort of conserved as a model in that, in that respect for society, you know, that we need to share, we need to, uh, we need to support each other. Uh, competition is good, but uh, healthy competition and one where um, you know everyone is provided opportunities. It's a convergent community. Mm, that's right. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, one thing that we've all had to deal with this past uh, past two years has been COVID. Um, has it impacted your work? Have you been able to keep chugging along? Yeah, uh, you know, um, I took sabbatical. Primarily for research reasons, getting you know moving students uh, research along this big proposal that I mentioned, but I can't say that there wasn't <laughs> a bit of selfishness in sort of avoiding COVID. I'm a nat naturally pretty how I should put it. I, uh, I'm not a socially necessarily very social person. I like socializing, but I can live quite well on <laughs> in isolation for for some period of time anyway, and so. Uh, I can't say that COVID has been an overwhelmingly crushing emotional experience or, or an experience that has caused me a, a great, you know, I've had it, actually I had it in April, but uh, it hasn't been something that has affected me, I don't think, at least, at least in an immediately obvious way. And 
and uh, I used the opportunity to really focus to try to get some things done. And as I say, I'm pleased that uh, I was successful with this grant uh, proposal. So wonderful. I had it in April too, <laughs> and I'm also um, yeah quite a uh, socially distant or not distant, but um, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, in your job, I can see that there's a need to actually interact with people uh, a lot. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> this is, I don't want to interview you, I guess. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> um, I'm curious, if anyone's listening right now and is wanting to follow in your footsteps, uh, what courses or background uh, or experiences would you recommend that they pursue? Well, I took my dad's advice. I would take my dad's advice to heart. If you are quantitatively, you know, if you feel that you have at least moderate quantitative gifts, you feel comfortable with math and physics, then engineering is a good way to go. And uh, just simply because it allows you a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, in our work, uh, if I get applications from particular engineering physicists or applied mathematicians, um, or, you know, uh, they're often highest on my list because those people have the toolbox to solve you know, all sorts of problems. And of course, computer science as well. And people who go through those programs often have, you know, they're often recognized as being, you know, uh, as, as having skill sets that are useful across a wide range of, of different endeavors. So, you know, that's probably what I would say. I, I would say that, you know, even in, even if geophysics is your, is your you know, your lifelong uh, passive or your, your childhood passion or something, you should still probably do something that gives you uh, the opportunity, perhaps to choose that as a, as a vocation in, in graduate work or whatever. But uh, you all, one has to be practical as well. And so developing those skills, in particular quantitative skills, I think is, is, is very important. If you feel you've got them, um, you know, Doing engineering is probably doing engineering or well, pure physics or math for that matter as well. But those are those those are those are skill sets that I think are very much in demand and will allow you to do a whole range of different things. So I guess that's that, that would be my <laughs> that would be my advice. Uh, rather than saying you know I, I don't know I, I don't want to uh, if I uh, that's how I advise my kids. The fundamentals never go out of style. <laughs> I should be I should be advocating for your sciences, which is uh, I realize that uh, perhaps this should be <laughs> this portion of the interview should be cut out. But uh, anyway, <laughs> no, no, sounds great. Yeah. Uh, th there are many ways to get to the same destination. Yes, and right. um, having people from multiple backgrounds working on a problem yeah. means that what's low hanging fruit for one person uh, may have taken another person uh, months to figure out. That's quite true. That's quite true. Uh, a slightly different take on that question. Um, many fields are changing at lightning speed, especially these days. Uh, and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career could be completely unrecognizable by the time they retire. So where do you see seismology going? What, what are the future trends that you uh, expect uh, coming down the pipe? Yeah, well, one of the things that has changed in seismology is, I mean, there have been a number of really important changes. One has been, well, instrumentation is one. Um, you know, they're moving from conventional seismometers now to um, uh, to um, these fiber optic cables, acoustic sensing cables that, uh, and so one has to develop new ways of uh, treating those sorts of data. And they're, they're very effective. Um, in many instances, you can lay cable over large, uh, you know, 
large linear areas anyway. Uh, another really important area has been the development of harnessing or exploiting uh, ambient seismic noise. So as you can imagine, well, there are all manner of uh, all manner of um, processes impart seismic energy into the earth: wind blowing, uh, ocean wave action, uh, trains, uh, you know, what have you, industrial activities, and uh, those those signals carry information about the earth's subsurface, and so. There's a lot of work done these days just using background, you know, having nothing to do with earthquakes, just using background noise to do things like understanding hydrologic cycles. Uh, I can see that sort of work, you know, I can see there are potentially many, many uh, still unforeseen applications of understanding what contributes to background noise. Uh, so that's certainly, that's certainly uh, one thing um, that is, uh, one, one could imagine that developing, you know, uh, quite considerably. Um, so you're absolutely right, but uh, it's a sort of an open-ended question because, of course, one can't necessarily predict what the uh, what new discoveries will will ensue. Uh, I mean, I don't think that at the beginning of my career I would have anticipated that one that one would be harnessing uh, just background noise to understand uh, Earth's internal processes and so on. So. At the beginning of the pandemic, I heard a rumor that uh, with all of the reduced human activity, um, seismographs were actually picking up the uh, reduced noise that we were generating. Yeah, that's right. That's, oh, that's, that's true. true. Yeah. Okay. So you could imagine it being used in government surveillance programs or something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all that's amazing. Science for bad and good. So uh, yeah, who knows? It's amazing. The tools are so refined. They could pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, my final question. I want you to look to uh, your own long term. And uh, what would you like to have as your personal legacy when you eventually retire? Oh, I don't know. I, I think that legacy is already, uh, is already, I mean, legacy is clearly students, you know, the people you've helped to uh, sort of follow their own passions, to develop own careers, that's, there's no question that that is, at the end of it, you know, you start off, uh, you know, with a lot of ambition and wanting to seek a name for yourself, etc. But uh, at the end, it's just the, the connections you've made, um, the fun you've had, uh, and, and really, it's and, and often, for the most part, it's often working with uh, student scientists, and this has been for in my part, in discovering something new. That's been the fun, and I think imparting that, hopefully imparting that to students, seeing them, uh, you know, begin to flourish in their careers. That's that's the most rewarding thing, without question. It's funny. Um, that's a theme that I've noticed in these interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, many early career scientists, they have a very clear goal mm -hmm. and something, you know, publish certain X number of papers or whatever. Um, and later career scientists often say uh, it's the, the students. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a testament to the wonderful teaching faculty that we have here at UBC. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. Michael, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, did I miss anything or is there anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I think that, that that's perfect, Daniel. Thank you very much for um, for doing this work. I think it's important that people, uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know who's, who listens to these podcasts. I hope it's uh, regular people who want to uh, know a little bit more about the life of scientists and so on, what they, what they do, what drives them. Great. Well, thanks for making the time and sitting down with me and sharing your fascinating research. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. 
On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.